This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for January 31st, 2020. I'm Megan Cantwell. In this week's show, I speak with Eric Hand about researchers' struggles to access cryo-electron microscopes, machines that create detailed models of biomolecules, and the journey of one team of researchers to create a cheaper alternative. And Joel Goldberg talks with Goodman Sebeko about the link between genetics and schizophrenia in a native South African population. When cryo-electron microscopy, a way to see the structure of biomolecules in extremely high resolution emerged, researchers were very eager to start using this new technique. But it has come with some complications. I'm here with Eric Hand, Science's European News Editor, to talk about his story, which dives into the challenges of accessing and also using these cryo-EM machines, and the individuals who are trying to create a cheaper alternative. Thanks so much for joining me, Eric. Thanks, Megan. So I want to start, before we dive into cryo-electron microscopy, also known as cryo-EM, talking a little bit about past ways to look at biomolecules, which is X-ray crystallography. Can you talk a little bit about this method? This method has dominated the field of structural biology for half a century since it was invented. And it involves taking the protein you're interested in and turning it into a crystal, Mm -hmm. um, having that molecule repeat again and again in a crystal structure so that when you hold it under a bright, intense beam of X-rays, you get a pattern that reflects the atomic structure of the protein you're interested in. It's still the dominant method of the field, but cryo-EM is coming up right behind it. What's so exciting about cryo-EM? What kind of advantages does it bring versus X-ray crystallography to look at these structures? The biggest advantage is that you don't need to make a crystal of the protein you're interested in. You just flash freeze it in solution in whatever form it's in. Then you put it in these large electron microscopes and the electron beams illuminate the proteins. And the way that the electrons scatter off of the atoms in the protein are how the researchers build a picture. And so that means that these biologists are able to see proteins in many more of their natural different configurations. Mm -hmm. What are some of the advances that have emerged as a result of using cryo-EM as a technique? Researchers are, are getting a view of, in particular, membrane proteins. These are proteins that exist 
on cell membranes and have been really hard to crystallize. So, so X-ray crystallographers haven't been able to image them, mm-hmm. but cryoelectron researchers have been able to, and these are really popular drug targets. There definitely are a lot of advantages to using this machine, but going into your feature, there have been challenges with it not being accessible for a ton of researchers. Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, the demand to get onto one of these cryoelectron microscopes is through the roof, and they're really expensive. They cost as much as seven million bucks once you have them all tricked out, even as much to install, and just there just aren't enough microscopes for scientists. It even costs money to retrofit the building because it's such a heavy machine. So there are all these other kind of hidden costs, not just the sunk cost of the machine, but just to operate it and run it. Yeah, they, they, they weigh up to 2,000 kilograms, and they're also taller than the average ceiling height in most buildings. And so you have to you know, carve out a special space for them. Besides just the sheer cost of the machine, once researchers finally get off that wait list and they're able to use the machine there's also a chance they're not going to get the exact result they're looking for. Why is that? The other problem with cryo-EM is that preparing a sample, getting your protein to freeze just right, is a very iffy or chancy thing. And after all this effort to get your protein and then to freeze it, you might finally get on your microscope and then find out that you don't have good ice, that your proteins are smushed or didn't freeze at all or aren't able to be imaged correctly. Are there new methods emerging in the field to resolve this issue? Some researchers are working on the sample preparation problem. So they're coming up with new ways to create your protein solution, to spray it in tiny microscopic droplets onto a sample holder, to to protect it during the freezing process. But the main thing that researchers think they can do to improve all this is to just have cheaper microscopes. Then it wouldn't be such a colossal waste if the sample isn't any good, if everyone has one of these microscopes in their basement lab. And your feature is following a few of these researchers that are on this mission to make a more affordable and accessible machine. How long have they been working on this project? There's a famous laboratory in England called the Laboratory for Molecular Biology, and it's actually where crystallography was invented, but it's also where cryo-EM was pioneered as well. And Richard Henderson, a senior researcher there who won the Nobel Prize a few years ago for his work with cryo-EM, is leading a a group that's intending to undercut the leading microscope manufacturer and make a cheap machine. He calls it a people's cryo-EM. He refers to it as the Volkswagen Beetle of cryo-EM. What about their microscope makes it cheaper to manufacture? It's lower energy. By sending out its electron beam at lower energies, they don't need to have as much shielding. The magnets that focus the electron beam don't have to be as big and heavy. They don't need quite as expensive a system for producing the high energy electrons. Just there's all sorts of cost savings that can go into making a lower energy microscope. And they think that the pictures from the lower energy microscope can be just as good, if not better. Where are they at right now in successfully creating this cheaper alternative? They're getting closer and closer. They've demonstrated that it can work for a sort of cobbled together prototype machine. But now they need to convince manufacturers to give them the parts to make a high-end low-energy microscope. Or they need to convince one of the major manufacturers to do it for them. So far, the major manufacturers don't want to give up their nice market. And so they're kind of having to work around the big manufacturers and do it themselves or by going to smaller suppliers. 
Is there a chance that these bigger manufacturers are also working on a cheaper alternative? I don't really know what the major manufacturers are doing behind the scenes. But in the world of frontier scientific instrument making, this is often how it goes. Researchers pioneer something, they prototype something, and then eventually the big manufacturers pick it up and look for a way to mass produce it. But how that process happens and how fast it happens is a really interesting thing to watch, especially in such a hot field like like cryo-EM. Once this cheaper alternative is hopefully on the market, what can we kind of expect in structural biology? I mean, a lot more researchers will have access to it. What do you think will change? First and foremost, more scientists will be able to learn the technique and do real science with it. Right now, it's limited to the wealthiest institutions. Only about 130 of these high-end machines have been sold, whereas Richard Henderson and his group thinks that there's room for thousands of labs to own one of these machines if they're smaller and cheaper. Once the scientists get a hold of them, I guess the simple answer is just they will be able to solve more proteins. And I would expect that eventually, and actually it could be quite soon, cryo-EM will surpass X-ray crystallography as the method of choice. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you, Megan. Eric Hand is Science's European News Editor. You can find a link to his story at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. Stay tuned for Joel Goldberg's interview with Goodman Sebeko about the genetics of schizophrenia in a native South African community. This is Joel Goldberg. Now we'll speak with Dr. Goodman Sebeko, co-director of the South Africa HIV Addiction Technology Transfer Center and head of the Division of Addiction Psychiatry at University of Cape Town. Dr. Sebeko contributed to a study that investigated the link between genetics and schizophrenia in a native South African culture. The study is unique in that it involved only participants from a community native to the African continent and was conducted by researchers from that same community of people. Hi, Dr. Sebeko. Hi, Joe. Before we get to anything else, could you clear up the exact pronunciation of this culture's name? <laughs> uh, so that would be Tosa. Uh, it's kind of a click. Uh, you click your tongue along the inside of your teeth, like Tosa. All right, I'll give it a little shot. Tosa. That's not bad. For the purposes of this interview, is it okay if I say Kosa? I think that's all right. I also understand that you have a personal connection to this culture. Could you explain that as well? Yes. Um, I'm, I'm one of those people in South Africa who has uh, quite the admixture of um, uh, background. So my father was Tosa, and his father had a mix of Tosa and Sutu in him. So my mom is Zulu. My father and his family is Tosa. So I don't know what that makes me. I guess just part Tosa. I don't want to do any fractions. <laughs> How about the study? What was your role in the study? So initially I was involved uh, along with the initial program manager and the uh, recruited um, recruitment nurses, so the recruitment team itself, in the translation of the SCID uh, from uh, English to Tosa, um, as well as then subsequently the translation of additional tools from English to Tosa, involving the entire process of forward and back translation. Um, we worked with the researchers themselves, the, the team at the University of Cape Town, as well as some colleagues who are also co-authors uh, from the Eastern Cape. So it sounds like a significant part of your involvement had to do with your personal involvement and knowledge of the COSA. 
That's right. Subsequent to that, my role was really around providing ongoing diagnostic supervision of the team and providing clinical guidance as we reviewed the cultural implications of how we asked our questions, of what the responses would mean, how the nurses would interact with the content of the questions and the responses that they got back. Your expertise lies in psychiatry. We hear about schizophrenia all the time. It's discussed in news stories, written about in books, and depicted in popular culture in a variety of ways. Could you describe some details about schizophrenia that might help dispel some of its myths? What we find is one of the most common myths is that it's a personality disorder, that it relates to sort of the split personality um, and, and people's perception of people with schizophrenia, uh, you know, uh, relates to that. And, you know, people are fearful of schizophrenia because they don't understand it and they tend to then attach labels to it, which uh, stigmatize patients in the community. Part of the process of engaging with community members and patients at facilities that we approached as controls or as, as clients, it was an opportunity to inform the folks in the room about what schizophrenia is. And, you know, that involves talking about the fact that we believe there's a genetic component that there's a disruption in how uh, some of the chemicals in the brain function, which results in a distorted sense of reality. The key element of schizophrenia is that disruption in, in, in reality testing, where there are various manifestations, which range from perceptions, which may be from various types of modalities, be they audio, be they visual, be they uh, sort of tactile. You touched on a couple things in that answer. One was the genetics of schizophrenia, which is a major focus of the study, if not the main focus. Before we get to that, let's touch on the COSA's perspective around schizophrenia. Do the COSA have their own myths associated with this condition? You know, there's many perceptions. Uh, perceptions range from um, it being a manifestation of witchcraft or of a person's uh, ancestors being angry with them and therefore, um, you know, manifesting in this way. Um, and so those are some of the challenges that we had to face in, in our recruitment. Part of our work involved some community engagement where we hoped to impart some knowledge around such disorders. So sort of the knowledge that diagnosis of schizophrenia and other psychotic disorders are made contextually. What is perceived as a Western construct is really an outline for disturbances which might be seen objectively but need to then be contrasted against the milieu within which a person originates from. Um, and so that's, in huge part, the piece that's missing when you go to the community level. Why did this study focus specifically on genetics of schizophrenia? I think what we all know is that much of the genetics data that's been collected up till now has really been focused on, on the West. We've got a myriad of data from the United States, from Europe, um, from Asia, and we haven't really had an opportunity to get data from the African population. And in order to be responsive in designing new interventions and treatments for schizophrenia, it's, we, it, it, it's, it's important that we not leave Africa behind. The other side of things, of course, is the, uh, you know, the ancestral model. We know that um, hum humanity originated in Africa, um, and what we also know is that the migration of, of humans from Africa really happened only 50 to 100,000 years ago. And prior to this migration, we also know that much of the evolution, 99% of it took place before 
this migration happened. What that means is there's a really rich sort of genetic diversity in Africa. And that makes it that much more important that we focus on this population. Could you explain broadly what the results suggest? What we've been able to demonstrate globally is that these ultra-rare uh, mutations, private damaging mutations, have been able to predict new or recent mutations, um, not necessarily linked to a uh, familiar link. A lot of these aspects or these cases of schizophrenia are really novel in a genetic sense. That's right, yes. So, so, and we've been able to demonstrate this, and this, this, these findings are reflected in other studies which have been conducted elsewhere um, in Europe. So it's great to be able to, um, to replicate those findings. What, what this really suggests is that there's a fit with the evolutionary model of schizophrenia. And what we've been able to show is that schizophrenia seems to occur even in individuals with no immediate family history of the illness. Um, and that, you know, individuals with schizophrenia actually tend to have fewer children. Hmm. The observations suggest that new mutations can cause illness that's not found in close relatives. Um, you know, and that's really key. As we as we start to interrogate our previous uh, understanding of a familial, of a likely familial link. What was the importance of studying this particular population of people, the COSA? So the COSA population is really an ancestral population which we found to be fairly easy to access and would be easy to um, to to reach and, and study. So the study was based in the Western Cape and in the Eastern Cape, where there's a predominance of the of the Kosa folk. And what was it like working with the predominantly Kosa staff and all Kosa patients? There was the challenge of making sure that the research staff was able to really understand and articulate the research questions and understand the concepts that they were um, asking patients about, but to be able to contextualize it in a closer way. It really requires an in-depth um, exploration and understanding. These areas of discussion never stopped. There was constantly something new to explore, a new challenge brought up by a new group of community. It's that familiarity. That's right. And, and the upside of working with closer researchers is that there's an inherent sensitivity for this population. In Africa, if you want to do anything, there's a level of respect that you have to step to the table with. And these guys, because they're part of the population, the community, have that immediate buy-in, but also have the sensitivity to walk down these more sensitive questions and, and retain that therapeutic alliance through the interview. And I say therapeutic alliance on purpose because many of these patients, it was their first time being able to be interviewed in Kosa. Wow. And so it it was hugely valuable for them. And so obviously encountering these patients in their communities where many of these beliefs about mental illness, that it's you know, the, the witchcraft, the stigma in the community, the many beliefs that people who are ill this way should be excluded from the community, presents its own challenges around stigma and around identifying clients. So those are just some of the challenges that the team had to work through. And then there's that compassion from the COSA staff. Absolutely. And knowing when to stop. Some of the responses from, from families or communities that were resistant to, the initial, to initially being approached about this research would require the soft touch of empathy and compassion to understand where the, where the fear and um, concern is coming from. We dealt with issues including, you know, if someone takes um, a piece of, piece of you, a piece of your, you know, your blood is part of who you are. There's all these concerns around whether that's going to be used for nefarious activities against either you or your family. 
And so understanding that from the get-go is something that was very helpful and enables the navigation of these very complex issues. And that brings me to our final question. How might the COSA community and the world at large benefit from this research? Jeez, no, that's a tough question that we've had to answer to many an advisory board member. Um, I think knowing more about the genetic basis of schizophrenia allows us to look at new ways of targeting symptom relief. What would be of great value to the world and to the closer population um, is really the ability for us to identify new targets for intervention, for medical intervention. There might not be a direct benefit to the folks who are participating in the study now, but the more we understand about the genetics of schizophrenia and the more we learn from this population, which has such uh, a unique genetic diversity, the more we can begin to understand about these mutations and about where to target further novel drugs that improve quality of life. And that, I think that's part of the challenge of navigating this population, that you're saying what we're doing here is not going to benefit you today, but we're hoping that other people can benefit from what you're doing. But that seems to have, been, to have resonated really with participants, which is great. Dr. Sebeko, I really appreciate you joining us. Thank you, Joe. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the Science website. That's sciencemag.org slash podcasts. There you will find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, and many other places. This show was produced by Joel Goldberg and Megan Cantwell and edited by Podigy. Special thanks to Sarah Crespi. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.